This is episode number 372 with Anne Wojcicki of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. Nathan Chan here, coming to you live from uh, hometown Melbourne and uh, currently in lockdown. Um, This is lockdown number six for us, but uh, working through it, we're creating tons of awesome content for you guys as always, and we've got an incredible founder uh, on today's show. Look, Anne is the founder of a company called 23andMe. It is massive. And, uh, you know, she's one, She's like the first woman to achieve billionaire status for your NSPAC merger. Um, it's really interesting to hear her story around how she started 23andMe. Uh, you know, how should they got investment for, uh, for 23andMe from GlaxoSmith? Um now the company it's doing its own drug discovery and boasts a 2.5 billion dollar valuation and you're going to hear like the marketing tactics that inspired people to buy a product they know they didn't need and really how she got traction and what that looked like especially in the early days i think it's so easy often to look at a company and they've got, you know, a billion dollar valuation or they're generating hundreds of millions of dollars in annual revenue, but they all started from somewhere. And this is a really, really humbling story around how Anne has built this incredible company and really the plans that they have to do with like data um, from all these different people. And just, yeah, it's really, really interesting. So Guys, we work so hard to find these incredible founders to share their stories, share their experiences with you. If you have a second, please do take the time to leave us a review on wherever you're listening. And that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Okay, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? 
it was definitely not the path I um, necessarily expected. And I am uh, one of those people I never thought that it was never my dream to be a CEO or to run a company. Um, but at the same time, when I think back on my life, um, I've always been very good at just solving a problem. So like, for instance, when I was little, I really wanted to be able to ski. My parents didn't like, they didn't want to take us skiing all the time. So I set up a business just having my own ski trips. So with the genetics, what was really interesting to me is I, um, I saw the human genome be sequenced in 2000, you know, 2001. And I thought it was fascinating, like the interplay between genetics and, um, and your environment and, you know, how does your environment actually impact, you know, you know, what you were born with, what you're predisposed with. And I wanted access to my genetic information. And it was just really clear that it was not going to be easily made accessible. So 23andMe really kind of started out of this concept of like, I am going to start a company so that I can get access to my own genome and I can understand what it means. And um, so it, it came with this idea of like my own sort of personal passion of what I wanted to do, which was access. And like, if I think about my mission statement, it's about helping people access, understand and benefit from the human genome. And frankly, it's really just what I, I want. Like, I'm just totally fascinated with what the secret code in all of us is and what we're going to be able to do with it. Yeah, no, it's a, uh... It's, a, it's an incredible mission and the things that you guys are doing. Um, so you started this company in 2006, correct? Correct. And what were you doing before that? Uh, before that, I was investing in healthcare companies. So I always thought I'd be a doctor or a researcher. I love science and I love molecular biology. And I kind of stumbled into the world of investing. And investing for any young person is just absolutely fascinating because you spend all day researching companies. And at 22, I had this luxury of being able to call up any CEO or any chief science officer and grill them. Like I could ask them all kinds of questions. Like it was amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I um, spent 10 years investing. And what I learned over time was, um, you know, there's phenomenal people in the industry. There's amazing science and the structure of healthcare as it's set up really doesn't reward what's in all of our best interest. So what I mean by that is that if you successfully live to be a hundred and you're never sick and you never have a disease, you don't make any money for the healthcare system. And so I just felt like in that capacity, all of our incentives are quite misaligned. Like what I, what I really want is the least profitable for the industry. And so what I really want is to be healthy at 100 and to be as disease-free as possible. And the industry is really not optimized for that. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, okay, so you started 23andMe. Uh, I'm curious, just shifting your gears a little bit, like let's talk about the hardest moment you've had in business um, and how you dealt with it. You know, it's interesting. The hardest moments are not um, probably what's as publicly seen um, for instance, we're known for, like, we had a very aggressive warning letter from the FDA in 2013. And, um, you know, those moments were hard, but it's kind of like a, it's a crisis. It's a trauma. And you, for me, it was very much about like, there's solvable ways to do this. It's just about, I have to quickly reshift the company to solve the problem. 
Um, I think the hardest issue sometimes in companies is when you have personnel that don't work out and they're in positions of leadership. And I think those are, it's one of the main things I give advice on is, you know, the wrong person in the role can be incredibly toxic and, and complicating for a company. And um, usually what happens is people don't fire fast enough. Mm. And so the, the most challenging moments are not necessarily the ones that are public, but frankly, it's the ones almost where there's behind the scenes and it's, and um, you have a, a, you know, somebody in the, who's leading the company in the wrong direction. And that's usually been the, the areas that have been the most challenging, I think. Yeah, look, like, you know, businesses are built by people. Businesses are also destroyed by people. Like, I'm a big believer, like, if I have somebody who's in charge, you have to really empower them to be in charge. But if they're going down a path that doesn't work, like, you have to also be really clear to, to change things up when it's, when it's not working. So people have the opportunity to be great and opportunity to also destroy. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's an interesting thing, leadership. When you first start your company, you don't really realize the true importance of it until you, it starts to grow. And, and as I said, it, it's, it's about people. Like, and you need people surrounding you. And like, yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing. I'm curious, um, what, what do you do to develop as a leader? The main thing, I, I think as a leader, and I actually think this is true for everyone in the company, um, and in some ways you can kind of see it. Um, you can kind of tell you're doing it when, when you feel uncomfortable, but that's like, you need to keep pushing yourself and growing. And, um, you know, I try to push myself to do, to take on different types of projects or to learn about different areas. And one of the main things for me is not to really, like, I, I'm naturally pretty social. Like I love asking more people for advice. So it's one thing for me, I, um, I do feel like, like I can always be better. I can always keep learning and every single industry has something interesting to learn about. And, you know, even like I find fascinating, like the politics of grocery store shelves. I had no idea, um, that there was like, again, and how people resolve some of those issues. So interesting. Um, so I have found lately, um, um, you know, some of these CEO groups, where I can learn about totally different industries are actually quite helpful. So, and I also find I can learn, you know, some of the best learnings I have within the company actually come from, um, you know, people at all levels in the company. So people who are brand new at the most entry level have a very, like have a great perspective that I can realize something about the company that I didn't realize. So I think that, like, again, my general tenant is, you know, from, from Andy Grove of, you know, only the paranoid survive. So I think you have to always stay on your heels or always stay on your toes and you can learn, you should be learning every day and you should always be uncomfortable. And I can learn from other CEOs and peers and I can learn from, you know, all my colleagues who are, you know, within the company at all levels. And I think it's important to always have that open door. Yeah, I agree, 110%. So on the flip side, what would you say has been your greatest achievement uh, that you've had in business so far? I think my greatest achievement that I am quite proud of is that we had a vision at Series A and that vision has stuck. Like in some ways, the initial concept, it's kind of like the foundation, it's like the constitution, like it's, 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 it's held up well. 
And it's been something like even our mission statement of, you know, we help people access, understand and benefit from the human genome. But I think, you know, I'm happy that the foundation of it was so strong. There's all kinds of aspects that we've had to pivot on and change, you know, are we direct to consumer? Are we, you know, through a physician? Are we through the FDA? Are we not? Um, but the fundamental core premise of how we operate has stayed the same since the beginning. And I do look at us as an activist brand that is about empowering people to take responsibility and ownership of their health information. And I, um, you know, we don't always swim in the easiest lane. And I'm really proud that like we've, you know, we have a model that seems to really work and we've stuck with it. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting take. I've never heard that one before because, yeah, usually when you in the early days when you start out to, you know, you have a vision for this company, it evolves over time. So it's it's really cool to see that it's been really constant ever since the early days. It's remarkable. I mean, our one of our board members, Patrick Chung, he likes to always talk about it about how, you know, at Series A, like everything that we pitched, you know, we've kind of slowly chipped away at even things like drug discovery. And it's, um, you know, again, uh, you can set out to change the world. Like I look back, I, I really admire how Amazon has operated. You know, it's amazing that, and I think back from my investing days, actually like reading those initial stories in the platform and, you know, at the moment in time, people were so skeptical. Like, are you actually going to put your credit card online? Like that's, that was the metric we used to follow. I used to get reports about what percentage of the population had actually entered their credit card ever online. And, and we just think about, like we were talking yesterday about how, um, you know, my sister took her kids shopping and they were like, this is an awful experience. Let's just go back home and buy it online. And I was like, holy cow, like the world's really shifted. And so change is absolutely possible in all kinds of ways, but you have to have a vision for it and then it takes time and you chip away and you slowly make it happen and amazon is just like i said because i was there like i remember so well when they ipo'd and when they were critical like so many people were critical of of the vision and where it was going and holy cow what an execution story yeah no look um <laughs> incredible company it's 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 fascinating what they're doing so look I'd love to also switch gears and go back in time. Like, can you tell us about what was like growing up for you like? And, and do you think entrepreneurs are made at an early age? I think it's, look, I think that we were, like I look at my mom who is a teacher, but my mom is one of these people, like she's incredibly entrepreneurial, like, and she's entrepreneurial, not that she's ever started. Well, she has now started businesses, but as a child, like we wanted, she wanted to build a park. She was like, there should be a park near our house. So it just like, it never, it was never strange. She just lobbied the government. She like had a petition. She lobbied the council for money. She got money. She organized to build a park and like, boom, we had a park. So that's very much of a CEO kind of skill, like how to identify a problem and then how to solve it. And so what I think that we learned from our parents was very much about how do you identify, like, here's a problem that you want to solve and that's interesting to you. And then how do you figure it out? 
And so as a, you know, again, from a young age, my parents were very clear. Like if I wanted to buy new ice skates, they're like, well, figure it out. And so I do think that parents can train their children well to, if you put the decision-making and the problem solving on them and not solving everything for them, but like, you know, you want to do something like my son wants to go to a gaming conference. Like it's not my problem. Like figure out how you're going to get there. And it's great to see like how kids, you know, try to solve the problem. But I think those are the types of skills that then when you naturally, um, you know, see an interesting problem in life and you want to start something, you're at a, you know, you're in a position where you've, you naturally think about problem solving. And the main thing I think about as a founder is like, I'm a problem solver. Mm. So it sounds like that you, at a, at a young age, um, you, you, you're empowered, uh, and you know, you, you're raised to be much more confident to, to, to go out and, and solve problems, do things, work things out, put yourself out there. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really important for kids. And we had, like I said, I grew up on Stanford campus. It was, um, my parents gave us a lot of freedom. We had a fair amount of liberties to plan our summer, to, um, get jobs, to, you know, make decisions and learning how to make decisions is also just really important as a kid. So I do think independence as kids. And when I think about, again, other founders that are out there, they all have this ability in their teens to just really, um, you know, push limits and to pursue what was interesting to them and try out things. And, you know, being able to try and fail is such an important skill, like do things and, and screw up, which is really important. So I have to ask you because, um, you know, in your family, everyone is extremely successful in their own right. Like what, what do family dinners look like? Like what kind of conversations do you guys have? What does that look like? You know, it's interesting. We, um, because we all still live together or like my, my middle sister lives with me and, um, my oldest sister is down the road and, you know, conversations and some, what I'm really happy about, like my family, um, and our circle group has not really changed. And we had a luxury of growing up in the Bay Area. And um, we, there was a number of other families with three girls and we were all friends. And look, I think that there's a level of normalcy still within that group. So like my sisters and I, like one of the main things that we fight about is she steals my clothes. But now she doesn't just steal my clothes. Um, because she lives with me, she's in the house next door, she steals my mugs and my glasses. And so like I wake up in the morning and I have no more mugs and I'm like, stop stealing my mugs. But we, you know, what's also really fun is like my sisters are just really creative. So we, they're creative, interesting people. So we talk a lot about, um, with my middle sister, we talk a lot about disease area stuff. So she's epidemiology. So I'm interested in her work. Um, so when something new, interesting comes out, we talk a lot about, you know, various scientific findings, you know, Susan has been, a um, Susan has five kids. And so she's, she's a wealth of knowledge about, you know, how do you raise children? And like, right now we're in the thick of it. Like, what camp should I put my kids in? Like, what should I do? Um, so, you know, various events like that. So she's, um, she's great there. And, and she's also incredibly helpful with leadership. And thinking about, um, you know, how do you manage things? You know, how do I manage problems within the company? And, um, you know, we were talking just now, we were in a car ride together and talking about the whole return to office dilemma. 
And, um, you know, what's helpful, what's fun is like, we can have, um, I can get really interesting advice from her. And obviously she's in a much bigger platform, um, but we can, I can learn a lot from her. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. So I'm curious as well, what do you think we should be doing to raise the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders right now? Look, I think we have, and my mom writes a lot about this. My mom is actually in some ways like the best person here. Um, and I can't believe I'm even quoting my mom's book because, you know, as like the child, you know, you try to not quote your mom, but I'm quoting my mom, which is like her trick philosophy about, you know, trust and respect and um, giving kids independence. And I think that there's a total crisis in um, kids having independence. And I, I feel for them, like the number of kids, like, can we walk downtown? Can we do this or that? Like, they're just like tracked all the time. Like there's, there's nothing greater. Like I remember I, when I first had my first job and I used to love, um, back in the day when we, I loved flying and, um, I loved it. If I was going from San Francisco to New York and I had to stop three times, I like thought that was the best thing ever because then I could explore cities and no one would know where I am. Like the, the feeling of freedom and independence and exploring is just amazing. And I think it's just really important for kids to have that sense of independence and you can't be a leader without believing in yourself. And you can't believe in yourself unless you've had moments of trying and failing and getting back up. So it's so critical to be able to, um, to like, to also believe in people, like everyone, like people thrive. Like I, I'm so lucky because my mom believes in me every day. Like she just, whether she really understands what I'm doing or not, like, she's just like, you, you're like, you're great. Like, it's just, you need somebody who believes in you. So you need someone who trusts you and then you need that independence. And I think it's the independence that really worries me when I see, you know, um, how kids are, um, being chaperoned so much today. Yeah. And do you think that entrepreneurs, like to become an entrepreneur, you need to be a rebel at heart? Like, can you perhaps tell us of like maybe the first time you ever got in trouble or anything that, yeah, like, like what you described? Rebel is, I never got in trouble. I mean, it's one of those things that was interesting. Like I, I never got in trouble because I never, I never had anything to rebel against. I had so much freedom. It was like, if I, the only, there was only one time ever that my mom didn't want me to do something. And it was smart. Like she didn't want me biking up a road at nighttime. Um, but other than that, she was like, she was supportive. So I never had a need to rebel. I think it's really, what's important for entrepreneurs, I think really is that ability to um, solve their own problems, like to see something like if my kids, uh, like, again, I think on my childhood, like so many of my things were like, Oh, I want to have X and therefore I'm going to figure out how I do that. And so, like, I remember I had one kid in school and he was like, we, the school should have candy. And the school said, like, we don't sell candy. And next thing I knew, he was buying candy in bulk and he was selling it to all the kids. Like, it's just like a born entrepreneur. Like, that, that's like the kind of stuff that's, that's amazing. Like, you solved your own problem. So, you know, it's the, I also have to say, like, I'm the best entrepreneurs are someone who is like passionate. Like, like people who like really care, who are solving the problem in some ways for themselves, who like think so much about 
like, oh, I would use it in this way. You know, like Zuckerberg talks about like Facebook was his own kind of like way of meeting people. Um, Sergey and Larry with Google used to say like, oh, I just wanted all the world's information on my laptop. Like people were solving problems in part for like what they wanted. And like for me, 23andMe was all about like I was solving something that I genuinely really want. So I'm so passionate about it. So to me, it's almost like as just an extension from like, hey, I wanted to also have candy at school and we started selling candy. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So look, that's a good segue to talk about the 23andMe journey. Can you take us back to the exact moment where you kind of came up with the idea for 23andMe and and what do you remember of those early conversations? Uh, no, I remember well. We um, I was at a dinner with for a biotech company where I had met with them numerous times and it was like, frankly, it was a boring dinner and I wasn't paying attention and I was sitting next to the scientist, Marcus Stoffel, and he was telling me about this study he had done that was really interesting. And it was in the country of Corsray, which is in Micronesia. And he said, you know, there's almost 100% obesity, but only 80% become diabetic. He was like, isn't that interesting? Like everyone's obese, but not everyone becomes diabetic. And so they had done this whole sequencing project, like trying to understand, like, why does that, like, there must be a modified, like there must be something genetically that makes this 20% of the population not develop type two diabetes. And he said, I have so much data that it's chaos, but I don't have enough data to really make sense of it. And I said there, I said, well, what if you had all the world's healthcare data? He's like, oh, you could solve everything. Like it would just like that would like that's the solution to like life. And so I said, I was like, that's, you know, that's what we should do. And originally it was like, well, we should do that. And that should be like almost like a philanthropic kind of initiative of like have somebody, you know, put billions of dollars into this kind of initiative. Um, and and then um, at the same time started looking at companies like Illumina or Affymetrics at the time and there was a new innovation where you could actually get a whole human genome um, pretty cheap. And it was called the uh, the Affymetrix 500K. And you could suddenly get, you know, for a thousand dollars or so, you could get, you know, the variable regions of your genotype and said, it would be really cool. Like you could crowdsource this. And, you know, if you want to collect all the data, like empower people to all come together. And Flickr, Katerina Fake, who started Flickr, she was one of the people who like kind of helped explain to me. She's like, listen, the world, it's not going to just be this static, like, you know, information online, but it's, 
it's going to be alive. Like people are going to be like forming connections and it's social and it's dynamic. And like, you're going to live in this internet world. And again, this is like so obvious now, but like back in that time period, um, it wasn't. And it was this idea, like you can, um, you know, how do we get all the world's information or health information to really understand the genome? And then the technology was suddenly there to make it accessible. And the internet platform, um, you know, is all about social connections. And what's more interesting to connect on than the fact that we're all genetically connected and, you know, we're all genetically related. We have so many ways to, to connect through our genome and our health. So um, I do remember that dinner quite well. And then from that, it was really became about the pieces all started to come together and said like, holy cow, there's something amazing that we could do with this. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so, so you've got this idea. H- how did you start bringing this thing to life? Well, to be honest, I got really lucky. Um, I had been working, I had got at the same time, I had gotten to know some people who worked at this company, Affymetrics, and those ended up being my co-founders. So Linda and Paul um, had also been thinking about how do you actually introduce a genetic, pro- a genetic test and give people their ancestry information and, um, and potentially health information. And so it was a really nice convergence because the three of us had very different backgrounds and a similar passion for genetics and a passion that like the human genome is like hands down the coolest thing scientifically you can ever get your hands on. And, um, and that we're going to, you know, we're going to pass on that enthusiasm to everyone. And so I met Linda and Paul because they were proposing a, a Parkinson's study to my ex-husband. And, um, and as we started talking about what they want to do, and I started talking about my passions and also my passion with the research world, um, it was actually on Valentine's Day of 2006 that we said, like, let's start this company. And um, the three of us, we met later, we started the company and um, we started it that spring and launched the first product a year later. So it was, um, I think one of the best things is having partners. Like I am forever indebted to my two co-founders because in some ways the hardest thing is just starting. Like once the ball is rolling, there's all kinds of ways that you can keep tapping into it. But um, starting that ball rolling and their enthusiasm and their connections and their experience in the space was um, spectacular. Yeah. So I'm curious, what did the early days look like? Can you paint a picture for us? Team, office, set up? Uh, did you guys off the back go, go raise a seed round and then yeah, t- t- tell us about that? We first had, we quit our jobs And I had two scientific co-founders who were straight out of their Stanford PhD programs. And we decided that our first office space was going to be an apartment that we had in Palo Alto. And you weren't supposed to have companies in this apartment. And we, and it also was on the top floor and it didn't have, it was an old apartment and it didn't have like shades. So we had to, um, we had to put tin foil on all the windows and, um, we had bought this table at Ikea 
And I remember um, it was a blue table. And two years later, someone put a hot mug on it. And we realized the table wasn't blue. It was just, it had the blue protective wrap on it and we had never taken it off. Um, but that like kind of gives a flavor for like kind of where we are with our social decor and other things. We had these um, $15 chairs that we bought at Ikea that would break if you were over 250 pounds. And so every so often people would come in and sit and they kind of went one by one. Um, but we worked for a while in this apartment and that was actually the first time um, where we, where we, we sequenced like Linda's family and we had all of Linda's family there and my family and Paul. And it was the first time that we actually looked at human genetic information and we could see that it worked like uh, parents were connected to their children and siblings were related. And it was a moment, like I, I do remember we were all sitting on the floor and my head of product at the time had the, the monitor on the floor and he was like, like looking through and he's like, holy cow, like it works. And, you know, at that moment in time, like you didn't know, like was the technology accurate? Was there gonna be any kind of human, like, was there any errors? And it was just one of those things, like it's just shockingly accurate. And um, the ability to detect, you know, who your parents are and your cousins and your relatives. And it was one of those moments where you're like, holy cow, like, I think we're on to something. You know, that was in the early. And then afterwards, we moved into another office. And I think what's fun in the startup stage, like you, like we really focus on just what was the cheapest. And we had a really great office. We actually had rented it from um, SETI, the search for extraterrestrials. And so we used to love getting their mail. And it had this, um, it had no ceiling. It was like an open air building. It was almost like a tent area. And I remember our first security expert, he was like, well, you know, like if you really worry about security, you might want to start with a roof. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was so fun. Like we had all this, like, again, it's fun. Like you get the old furniture and like, all you do is just work you know, and you just, um, you just try and like every day is like, in, every day is kind of like an experiment, like, holy cow, like there's something new that's coming up. So it was um, in the early days, it was really just uh, five of us, you know, and I, um, you know, somebody who was doing a lot of the legal work and I am really grateful. Like, I think we had a really strong legal infrastructure or like, again, all of the agreements that we had were in our first fundraise was all very clean, which I think is important for companies. And the two scientific co-founders were, um, you know, they set the foundation for the quality of science that we we're gonna do for the rest of this company and their ability to hire and set the bar and, um, you know, an openness to trying and failing and keep iterating is amazing. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Thank you for, Sharing that story as if I, like we we're, we're there with you because I think it's funny you talk about that. Like I think of like the early stage, uh, early days of starting founder, and I always look back as like those are some of the funnest times. And I'm thinking to myself while you're describing this, I'm like, why are they some of the funnest times? Is it because do you? It sounds like that's the case for you. Like the early days, is it because perhaps after you get going and maybe you find traction, then it's 
this fear that you might now you have something that, that to lose, perhaps that things could fail. Like, 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 why do you think that is? I think what's fun in those early days is, um, in some ways, like your job description is so broad. Like I had to do a little bit of everything. Like I think about, you know, like, again, like some of the, you know, like I would have to register us with like the department of health of California. Like I remember filling out forms, which like now I have no business ever looking at or even filling out like my legal team would totally own it. And it's fun because in those early days, you're really doing a bit of everything. Like you just, um, so it's exciting because like you have no idea what's going to come that next day. And I think also there's a higher expectation of failure. Like things aren't going to work and it's going to be okay. And, um, you know, nothing's, nothing is set in stone yet. And I actually think it's really important because I still have that enthusiasm for the company. Um, and I still feel like every day, um, like it, it's slightly, like, again, people are more siloed. Like I'm not going to be responsible for, um, you know, coming up with my 409A valuation again, or like filling out, you know, legal forms for the Department of Health. Um, but I think it's important to still have that sense and that enthusiasm about risk. And one thing that I said, like, I think about 23andMe is like, we are always, we're the custodian of our customers' data. And our customers have come to us with this purpose is like, they wanna learn about themselves, but they also want us to do something. So my, fear, my, my, my worry is never failure of a project. My worry more is inactivity. Like, are we doing enough? And I think in those early days, you're just like, you're doing so many things. And I think as you get bigger, you can definitely get into the path where it's easy to identify everything has risks and so you don't wanna do it. And I think a lot, all the, I think all the time, like, are we doing enough? And what is it that's right by the customer to like really help them benefit from the human genome? But, you know, the early days are exciting because you have no idea what's gonna come. It's kind of like when you have a baby and you have no idea, like, I don't know, is it gonna be a cranky baby? gonna be happy baby I don't know so talk me through as well like I think it'd be interesting to hear what what was the first moment that you knew 23andMe you were onto something it was going to take off like when did you know the reality for me is I never doubted I mean I would say my thought process about the prospects of the company were the same when we started the company as they are today like I wouldn't say there was any well, again, I've always believed that there's like, again, it's universal. Everyone has a genome. So the product is universal. It's applicable to everyone. There was one day where um, we had a head of marketing who on a whim was like, hey, why don't we just like, there's this kind of fake holiday DNA day, which is like one that we, we've uh, helped kind of create and pioneer and, and celebrate, which is, again, it's a great day. Um, but we introduced one day, we're like, let's just cut down the price to $99. And um, we put a limit on it of like, we'll sell a thousand kits. And my head of engineering called me at seven in the morning. He's like, uh, we already hit our limit. What should I do? And previous to that, like we had sold, you know, like 20 to 50 kits a day. And I was like, oh, wow. Like we sold a thousand. Like, I was like, I don't know, just let it rip. This is like the kind of thing, like in those early days, like when you think about things, like 
that wouldn't be able to happen right now. But like, for me, I was like, I was a single point decision maker. I was like, sure. Like never, never occurred to me consequences of it. I was like, let it rip. Let's see what happens. And um, we ended up selling um, about 20,000 kits in 17 hours. And it only occurred to me at like five o'clock where I was like, holy cow, do we have inventory? Like it never occurred to me. Like maybe we don't have inventory. Like <laughs> this is how unsophisticated we were with operations. And it also didn't occur to me, like all the consequences that happen when you sell 20,000 kits in one day and your lab is expecting 50 to hundred a day, you just like, it's a nightmare for the lab. And then even shipping all those kits out, like we weren't set up to ship those kits out. Um, but again, those are, those are the kinds of things that you do in those early days where, um, I raised my series C round based on that, where I was like, look, there's clearly demand. There's like a ton of demand and we just tapped into it. Like, we're just starting to see people want this information. They just like, they just, they're like, again, they don't know exactly why yet. Um, and I like, there's all types of operational consequences from that, but it was the first time that we saw like, holy cow, there's huge demand for this product and um, we just need to unleash it. Yeah, wow, what a great story. Thank you for sharing. Um, last question and then we'll work towards wrapping up. Uh, what was the hardest moment of the 23andMe journey uh, in the early days? I think the hardest moment was um, we launched and we had this like huge spit party. We had, um, like cover of the New York style section. We had all kinds of famous celebrities involved and we sold a thousand kits the first day. We were super excited. And then volume dropped to like 10 to 15 kits a day and maybe 20 kits. And it was one of those things where you're like, like that, that to me was probably one of the hardest moments in the company because you have to build up awareness. You have to build up the market reasons to buy. Um, and you're still building, we're building the scientific credibility. And it appeared at that time, like no one necessarily wanted their genome. So in those early days, like the hardest thing was like, it's, you know, when you think about, you know, your genome wasn't anything people could relate to. Like, why would you want it? And so there was a huge amount of work in those early days to build out the whole brand and um, like just the, the reason why would you ever want your genetic information? And, you know, so it was part of like, we built out this whole ancestry product, the autosomal ancestry, where you can get, where you can see where your DNA is from, which parts of the world. And then another feature called DNA relatives, which will allow you to, you know, match up and see if you have any relatives so we really pioneered a lot of reasons why people would want this and stuff that's fun, but um, it was a slog. You know, I think about like you, you, you launched and it was so exciting. And then it's just, it was just like brute hard work. Cause you just, you have to build out also the scientific reputation. You have to build out everything. And at the same time you have no team. So <laughs> it was like, I think it, like we had no marketing team when we launched. So it was like that, that was by far and away the hardest is, you know, how do you build out a market? Yeah. In the, in the startup curve, I'm sure you've seen the diagram. I think it's from Paul Graham. They call it the trough of sorrow. You, you, like launch with a big bang, 
everything dies off and then it's just like this trail of sorrow and then little stage of hope, little stage, and then, yeah. Would you say that's the best? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, um, and in the genetic space, it's a long, flat curve. And then it just, and then it started to really take off. But you have to figure out why, you know, what is the reason why people want to, what do they want with it? You know, and it's, it's one of those things from a management perspective, how do you keep people motivated in those time periods as well, when people are not quite sure, like what's, what's the potential? Interesting. Um, I have to ask you one follow-up question to that. Um, and then we'll move to the hot seat round and we'll be pretty much done. Um, so are you pro product or pro marketing? Because Bay Area is always product first, product, product, product. Once you've got a great product, marketing will take care of itself. Um, love to hear your take. I'm absolutely pro product. Um, although I love my marketing team. I think I'm pro product, but I would say that one of the mistakes that we made um, is we didn't necessarily know how to market. And we did not necessarily do, I mean, we did not have a marketing team for years. Um, I'm trying to think when we hired our marketing person, I mean, it was, uh, it was at least five years after we started. And, um, you know, part of it was based on like the first things that we should, we have to have a product. You, we need to test from the customers. We need to learn from the customers. Um, I need also the scientific reputation. And once I understand my customers, certainly my early customers, how are they using it? Then I'll better understand how can I market it? So that said, in part of what I was pausing on is like, would I have done better market assessments about like, this is the population to go after, or like, these are the early testers who would be interested in it, or can I fill a demand in this area? Um, you know, I think those are all things that we could have thought about more, but I do think that if you don't have an amazing product, you have nothing to market. So you have to have first and foremost, an amazing product. And then the marketing job is just so much fun. Like I really, I, I love working with my marketing team because I, I feel like we have this spectacularly interesting but complex product and there's just really fun, creative ways to think about, you know, helping people understand what it is and what you can do. So, but it all starts first with like, I, the product team has created the opportunities. Okay. Awesome. Well, look, thank you for sharing. We'll work towards wrapping up. We've got one last section, which we call the hot seat round. I've got four questions for you. We want around 30 second answers, just uh, spitfire. All right. So the first one I have is what's the one trait every entrepreneur needs to find success? Um, persistence. Who do you look up to now and who are your mentors? My sister, Diane von Furstenberg, and pretty much anybody who has tried and um, keeps trying. What's one book every entrepreneur should read? Only the Paranoid Survive. And finally, the, the last question I have for you is, who is one entrepreneur you'd love to have dinner with, dead or alive? You know, I think about people who've created an industry because that's what's interesting to me. How do you create something out of nothing? So this is a little bit of a side interest, but um, Kaiser Permanente is, a, is the medical plan, is a medical group um, out here. And it started, 
you know, in the early 1900s as part of, I think, the steel industry. And it was a totally new type of insurance. It was, and it was, again, it was a way of taking care of workers. And I've always, because I love health, um, and I am also a, a child of, and I'm a, a user now of Kaiser Permanente and their health services, and I think it's a phenomenal healthcare group. I would love to talk to the person who actually, you know, pioneered it. So that health system, which truly is an integrated healthcare system, that is one of the few groups that does profit if you stay healthy. Amazing. Well, look, conscious of time, we'll wrap there, Anne, but thank you so much. That was an amazing interview. You really took the time to just reflect really like incredible like reflection and, and just being so open and honest. So, so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience with our audience. And uh, yeah, that was a fantastic interview. Appreciate your time. Of course. Such a pleasure. Fun questions. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.